0: Greetings. This is podcast number sixty nine of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Clark from the Rational Radical dot com. www dot the dot com. Today, we'll discuss another example of good news on the international economic justice front. It comes in the form of a powerful kick in the teeth against a third world debt scam that's been perpetrated against the poorest nations on earth for all too many years. I've also got some new music in my favorite genre, the blues. Let's get right into it. Last week we discussed one positive development in the struggle by the Third World to avoid being economically exploited by the West. It related to the sweetheart contracts between corrupt Third World governments and foreign multinationals that have allowed Third World natural resource wealth to be plundered. The impoverished people of those nations have shared virtually not at all in the benefits of their own country's natural wealth. But now Bolivia, under the new leadership of a president elected exactly for that purpose, just succeeded in nationalizing its oil and gas industry, forcing the multinationals there to pay a fair price for what they take out of the ground. The increased revenue will be used to alleviate the hunger and disease that plague the majority of dirt floor poor Bolivians. Today, I'm happy to report another advance in this end-exploitation and and reduce-human-misery-suffering-and-death arena. It has to do with the long-time practice by the West of making dubious loans to corrupt third-world governments. These nations are then entrapped on a downward-spiraling debt treadmill. My sources are the Interpress Service, the International Herald Tribune, Democracy Now!, the website of the Vatican, brainyquote.com, the online encyclopedia Encarta, the website of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, the Brookings Institution, and the Boston Globe. First, a bit of background. What's this all about? In the latter half of the 20th century, first world banks and multilateral lending institutions went on a spree, lending huge sums of money to corrupt dictators and military hunters the banks and other institutions knew that the loaned funds, whatever the ostensible purpose for the loan, wouldn't be used to benefit the people of those nations. Quite the contrary. In fact, a good portion of the funds were used to finance repression of the majority or stolen for private gain by those dictators and military leaders. And when it came time to repay the loans, who had to bear the burden? not the dictators, the principal and interest, and boy, does that interest add up over the years, in many cases eclipsing by many multiples the actual loan itself, the principal and interest had to be repaid by the already impoverished citizens of those countries through their taxes. Many of these indebted nations are forced to spend far more on repaying these loans than on health care and education, and other needs of their people. Listen to John Perkins, author of the bestseller Confessions of an Economic Hitman, speaking to
1: Amy Goodman of Democracy Now. The company I worked for was a company named Charles T. Main in Boston, Massachusetts. We were about 2,000 employees and I became its chief economist. I ended up having 50 people working for me. But uh, my real job was deal-making. It was uh, giving loans to other countries, uh, huge loans, much bigger than they could possibly repay. And one of the conditions of the loan, let's say a billion dollar loan to a country like Indonesia or Ecuador. And, And this country would then have to give ninety percent of that loan back to a U.S. company or U.S. companies to build the infrastructure, a Halliburton or a Bechtel, these were big ones. And those companies would then go in and build an electrical system or ports or highways. And these would basically serve just a few of the very wealthiest families in those countries. The poor people in those countries would be stuck ultimately with this amazing debt that they couldn't possibly repay. A country today like Ecuador um, owes over 50% of its national budget just to pay down its its debt. And it really can't do it. So we literally have them over a barrel. So when we want more oil, we go to Ecuador and say, look, you're not able to repay your debts. Therefore, give our oil companies your Amazon rainforests, which are filled with oil. And today we're going in and destroying Amazonian rainforests, forcing Ecuador to give them to us because they've accumulated all this debt. So we make this big loan. Most of it comes back to the United States. The country's left with the debt plus lots of interest and they basically become our servants, our slaves. It's an empire. There's no two ways about it. It's a huge empire. It's been extremely successful.
0: I ask you, how is this different from racketeering? Imagine that a bank kept making huge loans to a corporation when it knew that the CEO was stealing the money, not using it for the benefit of the shareholders. Would anyone seriously argue that the corporation should be required to repay such a loan to such a bank? Of course not. There actually has arisen in the law a concept called odious debt to cover such situations. By law, in most countries, individuals do not have to repay money that others fraudulently borrow in their name. Similarly, A corporation is not liable for contracts that the chief executive officer enters without the authority to bind the firm. But international law does not exempt citizens of a dictatorship from repaying a debt incurred by a dictator for personal and nefarious purposes." So the odious debt concept, unfortunately, hasn't yet been established in international law. There is, however, a worldwide movement trying to achieve the reduction or even complete cancellation of third world debt made under such odious circumstances. Prominent figures supporting this effort range from Bono to the late Pope John Paul II. For those of you who are Christians, or who know Christians that would take Pope John Paul's words seriously, here's what he had to say about third world debt. Quote, The principle that debts must be paid is certainly just. However, it is not right to demand or expect payment when the effect would be the imposition of political choices leading to hunger and despair for entire peoples. It cannot be expected that the debts which have been contracted should be paid at the price of unbearable sacrifices. In such cases, it is necessary to find, as in fact is partly happening, ways to lighten, defer, or even cancel the debt, Compatible with the fundamental right of peoples to subsistence and progress. Brandish the Pope's words as a shield when accused by a right-winger of being a commie or some such thing when you advocate for third world debt relief. Now the good news. An unprecedented action by Norway may well lay the groundwork for such an odious debt doctrine to become a weapon for those campaigning to cancel these illegitimate third world debts. Anti-debt campaigners are hailing as groundbreaking Monday's decision by Norway to cancel $80 million in debt owed by five poor nations after it determined that the loans were not granted in a good faith effort to promote development. The five countries are Ecuador, Egypt, Jamaica, Peru, and Sierra Leone. In the future, Burma and Sudan may benefit as well. What's critical here is, Norway made an admission of wrongdoing. The debt was not canceled as an act of charity, but as an act of justice. Norway actually used the term illegitimate debt and said its making of the loans in question was a, quote, policy failure. According to the Norwegian government's statement, their country's shipbuilding industry was not doing well. So between 1976 and 1980, they undertook a campaign to sell 156 vessels plus shipping equipment to poor nations. The projects in those countries, as could have been expected, quickly became unsustainable, and the Norwegian government started collecting debt repayments on these failed boondoggles. Quote, An official probe in the late 1980s found that the effort lacked adequate analysis of the real needs of poor nations as well as risk assessments. The main conclusion was that this kind of lending campaign should not be repeated. Of course, if Norway knew this in the late 1980s, why did it take them all these years to cancel the debt? And, have they been collecting payments ever since then? Shouldn't they refund these repayments as well? In any event, Norway's step now, even at this late date, is most commendable. As Gail Hurley of the international anti-debt group Eurodod put it, It is not fair that the populations of debtor nations continue to pay the price of corrupt, negligent, and politically motivated lending in the past. Norway's government has in effect admitted that its lending in these particular cases was irresponsible and motivated by domestic concerns, rather than an objective analysis of the development needs of the countries involved, quote. This is in stark contrast to the continued refusal of other First World creditor nations to admit wrongdoing. As the Interpress Service reported, quote, rich nations, especially in the powerful group of bilateral creditors known as the Paris Club, and through multilateral lenders like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, Have long denied promoting illegitimate debt to corrupt governments. These denials seem absurd when you consider some of the actual loans in question. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, I'll give you some examples of odious loans, the lenders of which could use a healthy dose of Norwegian honesty. Okay, let's consider as a first example, Nicaragua. The United States invaded Nicaragua in 1912 and stayed the better part of 22 years. In 1934, we left behind a dictatorship. And the last of them, Anastasio Somoza, he was overthrown by the Sandinistas in 1979. Somoza was a U.S. favorite. No wonder we turned a blind eye as he stole. Depending on which source you trust, somewhere between a 100 to $500 million of the money lent to Nicaragua. Nicaragua was, and still is, one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere. For it to be forced to use a good portion of its national governmental budget to repay rich creditors who never should have lent the money in the first place is nothing short of criminal. Happily, in the last couple of years, various international lending institutions under pressure from anti-debt campaigners, have forgiven much of Nicaragua's debt. But these lenders did it out of charity, not out of justice, without any admission of wrongdoing. Without acknowledging wrongdoing, the same process of foistering odious, unrepayable loans could be repeated. Here's another example. The Congo, formerly known as Zaire. Back in 1961, the CIA and dictator Mobutu Sese Seko collaborated to murder one of his rivals for power. Since then, the Congo has racked up $12 billion in debt. Mobutu stole up to $4 billion of that. Justice demands that this debt be canceled, not out of the goodness of the lender's hearts, but as part of an admission of wrongdoing. Let's not forget the Philippines. Dictator Ferdinand Marcos was a U.S. favorite. Marcos borrowed $28 billion. And as if saddling his nation with that debt wasn't bad enough, Marcos stole $10 billion of it for himself. Come on, right-wingers. Please tell me that impoverished Filipinos should really have to repay that principal and the interest on it through their taxes. A last example I'll give, and perhaps the most egregious, is South Africa. During the 1980s, the apartheid regime there received loans from private banks, which helped finance the military and police apparatus, which kept the black majority in subjugation. Now, maybe a lender could try to say with a straight face, I didn't know Somoza was stealing the money. I thought Mobutu Sese Seiko was using the funds to help his people. Marcos? I was under the impression that the Philippine people were much better off because of these loans. Of course, anyone with their eyes half open, and not wearing right-wing-the-color-of-money-tinted glasses, couldn't have said these things with a straight face. But continuing on, Could anyone on earth in the 1980s have been unaware of the situation in South Africa? Could anyone have been unaware that any support for the apartheid government was aiding and abetting evil? Yes, right-wingers again. Back in the 1980s, the world was trying through disinvestment and other methods to coerce the South African apartheid dictatorship to give up power to the majority black population. But that right-wing icon, that right-wing hero, Ronald Reagan, damn they'd rename Washington D.C. Reaganville if we let them, Ronald Reagan insisted on following a typically phony right-wing policy called constructive engagement. Reagan claims such a policy of quiet diplomacy would lead to positive change in South Africa. As with virtually everything a right-winger claims, the exact opposite is true. That such is the case here is attested to by none other than the major anti-apartheid figure, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He said at the time of that apartheid regime, quote, in my view, the Reagan administration's support and collaboration with it is immoral, evil, and totally unchristian. You are either for or against apartheid, and not by rhetoric. You are either in favor of evil or you are in favor of good. You are either on the side of the oppressed or on the side of the oppressor. You can't be neutral, quote. Tutu then went on to say that the constructive engagement policy, quote, has encouraged the white racist regime into escalated intransigence and oppression, close quote. Encouraged the racists into escalated intransigence and oppression. Is it any wonder that with Reagan standing reality on its head and opposing boycotts of South Africa, international lenders would figure, if it's okay with Reagan, it's okay with us. Let the funds flow. Dare to tell me, please, anyone dare to tell me that these loans to an overtly racist government should not be cancelled with an open admission of wrongdoing by the lenders. So with all this in mind, you'll understand the reasoning behind the calls for the Norwegian decision to become a precedent. Quote, several leading non-governmental organizations immediately touted the decision as a model for other wealthy creditors to follow in order to ease the global debt crisis that has squeezed many developing nations. Anne Louise Colgan, acting co-executive director of the Washington-based Africa Action, said, quote, "Norway's statement this week and its willingness to accept responsibility for illegitimate lending set an important precedent that other international creditors must heed." Close quote. Here again is Gail Hurley of Eurodad, "Today the silence has been broken and we urge other creditor countries, in particular in Europe, to follow Norway's bold lead. Quote. Maybe to break the silence further, what's needed is a sense of shame. How can you possibly accept repayment of a loan from starving people? From people without access to even basic medical care? From people who never benefited at all from the money you immorally lent to their unelected dictatorial government. Such was the thought of a spokesperson for Jubilee Norway, a group fighting for cancellation of third world debt. He said, the Solheim referred to as the Norwegian Minister of International Development, Eric Solheim, quote, This is clearly a case of illegitimate debt. Norway broke its own rules by not assessing the development needs of the countries we were exporting our ships to. But Solheim is now canceling all of this debt. This is an historic victory for us. It's the end of an embarrassing story for Norway. We applaud Solheim for this bold step. If Norway is embarrassed by its shipbuilding debt, how much more so should be those who lent money to Somoza and Mobutu Seisi Seko, and Ferdinand Marcos, and the apartheid racists, and all the other killers and mass murderers and starvers of their own people, whom we in the West supported during the Cold War, as long as these evildoers mouthed anti-communist words. And I ask you, what sort of a philosophy, what kind of a theory of political thought, what type of moral outlook could provide justification in a person's mind for such actions? The answer is provided by one of my favorite observations from the recently departed, noted economist John Kenneth Galbraith. Quote, the modern conservative is engaged in one of man's oldest exercises in moral philosophy, that is, the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness. Close quote. Could it be anything but selfishness gone wild, greed gone wild, that keeps those on the right from admitting our wrongdoing and agreeing to cancel the third world debt? I don't think so. Do you? Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at PodcastAlley.com. There's a one-click link to do each of those on my podcast homepage. You get to my podcast homepage by typing in Blast the Right in Google, and I'm the first result. I'm still hanging in there at number 9 on the Podcast Alley Top 10. I need more votes as a cushion in order to withstand the surge from below that is undoubtedly going to come soon. So if you haven't voted yet this month, take a few seconds and do so, please. As I mentioned last week... The Blast the Right compilation CDs are now available for purchase at cafepress.com. They're $4.99 each, my cost, plus shipping and handling. Also, now there's a link on that page for a do-it-yourself version. Download the zip files for free, unzip them on your computer, and then burn the CDs on your own. The page with all this information is linked off the main podcast homepage right next to the pictures of the two CDs. I want to give a special shout-out to all of you out there who live in a Red Sea. Many of you write in and tell me that it's great to hear a progressive voice because you don't hear one when you walk around your own neighborhood. Believe me, I understand. I grew up in a conservative town on Long Island right near New York City, so I definitely understand what it's like to be in your shoes. A happy Thanksgiving to everyone! Now, a word from the Progressive Podcast Network.
1: The Progressive Podcast
0: Network. Now, we
1: are the media. Listen to your media. Take your country back. ProgressivePodcastNetwork.org
0: Music credits. The break music was Boomer's Boogie by Wang Dang Doodle. We'll close with a bit of Impeach Bush Blues written by Rich Zubati. He is the Rude Guy of the Rude Guy podcast. In case you don't remember, although it's probably hard to forget, this is the
2: Rude Guy. This is the Thinking Man's Podcast.
0: His podcast address is The song is performed by what he calls an old friend of his, Dan Bergevin. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Thanks to listener Aaron, a progressive Christian and former Republican from West Hartford, Connecticut, for the John Perkins Confession of an Economic Hitman clip. I still love getting all your emails, so send it on in. Rational at Adelphia.net is my address. If you prefer, you can call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Just dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. I can also be reached on Skype. My name there is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls.
2: Well, I woke up this morning, I turned on my TV. There was the president liar to me. has got to go Ooh, he's got to go We want our country back, baby Got to show him the door Well, during Vietnam The man just couldn't be found But now he's attacking by air and by ground I said, hey, yeah The president has got to go he he lied to us once but I don't want him lying no more Mm -mm. well there's a mountain of bodies, there's a mountain of debt, there's a mountain of troubles and it ain't over yet said hey yeah the president has got to go he's gotta go we want our country back we're gonna get it Want to show him the door